Hey everyone, welcome back to the weekly Scrubbed In podcast. I hope you've all been keeping well. We've noticed we've had so many new listeners and supporters and we want to give a massive thank you to everyone who's been supporting and sharing. Just as an introduction to all our new listeners, my name is Abdul, I'm a junior doctor and this is my colleague. My name is Ams, I'm also a junior doctor. And this podcast was set up to document our journey from starting medical school right up to becoming doctors. It's kind of developed and grown a lot since we started it and now we kind of interview and bring on guests who are medics, founders, entrepreneurs who are inspirational or who have a story to tell. We talk about lifestyle, we give inspirational and motivational content um, and in light of the new coronavirus we're putting out a new series called Podcases where medical students can tune in and go through a common case study through the eyes of a junior doctor. This is wholesome content to inspire, to motivate, to encourage you and we hope you enjoy this journey and we look forward to getting to know you a bit more. So today we're, it's a bit of a change for us, we're managing to record remotely, um, it took us a while to figure it out but we thought we'd talk about how the coronavirus has affected us as junior doctors, what it's like being on the front line, what it's like being a doctor in this, I know the term's been used, unprecedented times. Um, so we'll start with AMS and then mm. we can kind of talk about our experiences. Um, so the coronavirus, so I actually was on my GP placement when the whole coronavirus hit the UK, so not in the hospitals, and my consultations initially were being triaged in the sense that um, we had patients coming in, if they had any sort of symptoms and signs of coronavirus, they'd be told to ring 111 and self-isolate. Um, eventually, obviously, the numbers increased to such a level where now everyone became a query COVID case, so it became telephone consultations. So I would say as a doctor, um, I would say I was pretty protected. I was pretty protected. I wasn't at the time concerned about PPE, making sure I had all, all my safety equipment and things like that because I was doing um, consultations through telephone. But telephone consultation is probably one of the hardest things I've done. If you think about it, you're assessing a patient, their signs, their symptoms, um, everything that's going on without any observations, without seeing the patient, without seeing how they are, you can't examine them. You just have to go off of what they're telling you. Um, that was super, super challenging, you know. Um, I remember there was this one case, right, so the patient called up because their child had a rash, um, said they just needed some Dermal 500, which is just some hydrating cream, essentially. Um, and I sort of, a part of me felt that something wasn't right. Why would they just ask for Dermal 500? So I said, look, I need pictures. I'm going to need a video consult instead. And the child had a meningitic rash, a proper meningitic rash over the whole body. Obviously, I had to call 999 and send the child in straight away from the GP practice. But it goes to show, right, the coronavirus is going on, right? But we've got heart attacks. We've got loads of PEs, strokes. We've got people with uncontrolled diabetes, people going into kidney failure, people going into liver failure, and it's spiralling out of control. But obviously the focus is on coronavirus. Just because coronavirus is around doesn't mean everything else has disappeared. And I think that's that was a huge, huge challenge when I first started. Since then I've been obviously redeployed. But I think before we go into that, what was mm. it like for you when you first started? Because I think you were working around... You were working in ITU when all of this hit. Yeah. And that was the specialty that was actually being pummeled, wasn't it? So I was, so I'm currently on ITU. Mm. Um, so when the whole coronavirus, the pandemic kicked off, I was 
towards the end of my rotation of critical medicine or ITU, just about to go into GP. So at that time, the number of cases in the UK were increasing, um, but there wasn't an insight into how badly we would be affected and the mm. fact that, you know, the country will be hit so bad. So fast forward a few days or a few weeks, we basically got the call or found out that all existing doctors on critical care medicine or on IT would need to stay because a lot of these patients were having to be intubated. A lot of these patients were in respiratory distress. So that kind of indicated for us that, okay, this is getting really bad. Mm. So ITU is like a, you know, like a 28, 30 bed unit. But mm. within the next few weeks or within that week or so, we very quickly started changing recovery theatres or places into second ITU. And we had about four spaces that had like an ITU capacity. So... Were you guys prepping or was it that you had an influx of patients that needed? So we were prepping. So we knew okay. the influx were happening. We So we saw what was happening in London, which was massively hit. So mm. we knew, okay, this is a trend. This is what's happening in other countries like Italy. So we need to prepare. And naturally, you just hear the case studies, right? So we were already with foresight and luckily the hospital kind of, you know, opened up other rooms or other mm. facilities that had ventilators. So essentially, at the time, you may remember, the main thing was ventilator, ventilated yeah, beds. Yeah. So... Obviously, ICU is a certain capacity, but we very quickly managed to find four other places or four other units, and there were different stages. Stage one, yeah. stage two, stage three, and four. So that's all logistics. Me working as a junior doctor at the time, I thoroughly enjoyed my ITU rotation, but it's like, I've done my bit, I want to move on to GP, which is mm, a bit yeah. more relaxed. Um, then this call came, everyone needs to stay, and we did a massive recruitment. We had loads of other juniors that had ITU experience come onto our rota, and the IT rota is very difficult. Like yeah. it's 12 hour shifts, loads of weekends, loads of nights. It's all merged into one. Mm. Um, so I'll tell you a few of the cases we saw initially just before we went into lockdown, right? Yeah. So we saw these query COVID or these highly suspicious patients come in. Some were quite young, some were fit mm. and well, some didn't have any background medical histories. Um, and it was a story of they'd come into the hospital, they'd have you know, fevers, coughs, or they'll be on the wards, or they'll be struggling to manage them on the wards and they'll need to be brought down into ITU for, you know, further management, further treatment. And I remember seeing with my own eyes, Mm. like a a 34-year-old gentleman kind of, he was fine, he was on his phone, he was FaceTime, his family talking about it, and then suddenly you get this call, doctor, I can't breathe, I'm struggling. Mm. And at that time, the protocol was don't delay intubation, Mm. like essentially put them on a ventilator as soon as they're struggling. And I yeah. remember like seeing it yeah. and we went into a room and, you know, you had all the gear on, etc., And that's basically putting a tube down. So, you know, the whole yeah. sedating him, paralyzing him, sticking him on a ventilator. And that was the case for a few patients, especially on. So we saw that way before lockdown happened and the country came to kind of realize, yeah. yo, this is serious. And then obviously the curve just shot up. Yeah. Loads of cases, loads of different and people presenting to hospital in loads of different capacities. Did did the coronavirus ever make you feel a little bit helpless as a doctor? Because, so now I'm on medicine, right? When a patient goes in to say, can't breathe, respiratory distress, yeah. and obviously we're starting to do ABGs, we're giving them oxygen, we're changing it to OptiFlow, then we're going to CPAP, BiPAP. Mm-hmm. Eventually, we intubate. Did you ever feel like, damn, we, we just 
honestly speaking, when the patient says they can't breathe, we can't really do anything to treat the this condition. So for us, it's a bit different. So I need to kind of make it clear. My experience of the coronavirus is very mm. different and very skewed to the general population of the general junior doctors, mm. primarily because I'm on ITU. So we see the really bad cases, the ones that are really struggling. If you were to see their chest x-ray, you would just see loads of you see everything but free air. You'd see yeah. everything and you just know like, okay, mm. how on earth can you breathe by yourself? You need yeah. some sort of support and aid. So we do have the odd patients where we bring down because we know they're about to deteriorate. I kind of put the patients into free camps into my head. There are the patients that come down from the wards and they need the extra bit of support yeah. and they do really well. And they're discharged back from the unit, back to the wards within two, three days. Yeah. Then you have this group in the middle where they're intubated, they're sedated, they're paralysed and we're struggling. They're mm. not improving, neither are they deteriorating. And they're the ones you're trying to desperately kind of figure out, you're trying to save them, you're trying to find out what's happening, what the cause of this disease is. What, what, what do you do though? That's the thing. What do you, yeah, they're on the machine, but is there anything that we're doing actively in the ITU department where we can actually treat health? So I think a lot of the care as it stands and there's, there's a lot of research that's been happening, but and it's obviously very tricky for me to say being a junior, mm. but a lot of the care we were given was supportive, essentially yeah. looking after their breathing. So putting them on a ventilator, allowing the body to recover, allowing them to go through this infective phase. It is a virus at the end of the day. And we just, yeah. a lot of it is based on supportive care. Um, and as you know, a lot of research and testing is going into vaccines, X, Y, and Z, but mm-hmm. we're very far from it. And a lot of the stuff we were doing is supportive care. And then there's a last camp, which is, they've been hit so bad and we're struggling so much and we're putting them on them on so much oxygen yeah and we're struggling and it's a losing battle and they're the ones that unfortunately mm. kind of deteriorate and die um but it's all touch and go i think you know the curve is starting to plateau or you know but um at the beginning it was bad we had loads of patients coming in i remember our handover our sheet was everyone's pretty much covid or highly suspicious everyone or the vast majority being intubated, sedated, paralyzed. And there was a moment where like, you're kind of stuck, you know, how do we move forward? Yeah. And it's good. You did have the one or two wins, but a vast majority of them remain static. Um, how, how did you feel? in? Because in the ITU department, I would say you're the most highest at risk in terms of getting COVID yourself. Mm. You live with your parents and everyone at home, mm. obviously. Mm. So everyone around you becomes... Yeah. A risk as well because of you. So how did you feel about... Were you protected? Did you have enough PPE? Yeah, and so like I that? think this kind of brings in this whole PPE argument. I think ITUs in general, or from my experience, we haven't had any issues with the PPE. Like, it seems to be well-stocked. We have, like, a, a, a procedure before you go into unit. There are people to, you know, even write your names on the, on the, on the gowns, people yeah. to help you. That's good. So we had... We were, I think, to a certain degree, we were protected very well, and that made me comfortable the second thing, a lot of the patients were ventilated, so they're on a closed circuit. As okay. in, with coronavirus, it spreads by droplets, so mm-hmm. we didn't have the patients that are coughing into the air and, you know, sneezing, whereas a lot of our patients were on what we call a closed circuit. Mm-hmm. So that was a bit more reassuring. But naturally, at the forefront, and before we kind of realised how bad coronavirus was, I'm sure there were people that were suspicious of it and we were exposed. Um, but in terms of the PPE, I think it's important that Although for my unit, it does seem to be adequate, well-stocked and I haven't had any concerns or issues with it personally. I feel in other parts of the hospital or other parts in Mm. the country, 
maybe it isn't as adequate or as required for them and that's something that i can't comment on but from speaking to my colleagues there does seem to be this you know you hear stories about you know nurses being told to use the same aprons people mm. using the same mask even though disposable and it's heartbreaking to hear that and that sometimes i feel guilty because i have it all Mm-hmm. I've got the gloves I've got all the different masks I've got the gowns I've got people writing my names on me Yeah. whereas I know in a different hospital somewhere there's someone that's using the same apron or same mask I don't know how it is for yeah. you because you're on the wards now so so at my hospital it does it does vary a little bit I think IT you obviously get the priority Pri- on you're doing aerosol producing um, procedures as yeah. well aren't you so mm. you guys are obviously being prioritised on the medical ward so we have the plastic aprons, which mm. are plentiful. We've got surgical masks, plentiful. Mm. But the FFP3 masks and the the options if that doesn't work for you. So, for example, um, we all, we've all been recommended to shave, to t- uh, fit test. But then after failing the fit test, right, the FFP3, I haven't seen anyone have a hood mm. or anyone have any of the alternative mask options. And even with that, the FFP3 mask is, technically speaking, it, it's a disposable mask, one-time use I've seen sort of people put it into a plastic bag and have had mm. to carry it around, which is which is concerning. But there is there is a lack of it, a little. I would say relatively, relatively. Now again, it's not that bad at my hospital, but I think it's variable. So I think there are places because I've seen the tweets, I've seen the pictures, I've seen the images of people washing their gowns, washing mm. um, their gloves and things like that, and leaving it to dry to then reuse in a week's time or what have you. Um, so I do think it is a real problem. It's just that I guess. Because we've been at major hospitals, mm. we haven't been subjected to that sort of level of deficiency. Yeah, I think that's true. I think, um, I'm not sh- too sure how it is for the rest of the hospital, but I know mates that work at hospitals that are probably not as busy. So obviously I work mm. at a major trauma centre. You are a major centre. Mm. Um, I have friends that, you know, you know the local village, the general yeah, district hospital. Yeah. And for them, it's a bit bad. They're looking after loads of patients, not having adequate PPE, and they are more at risk. So yeah. the, funnily enough, even though I'm on ICU, maybe the risk may not be as high as someone that's on the ward without inadequate PPE. So yeah, the PPE yeah. is what protects you. Um, exactly. So it's a, a shame. To how, kind of how would how would you feel if you were so if you were in one of those, say those, village based hospitals having to reuse? I'll be it, scared. What would you do? I'll be scared. I wouldn't know what to do. It's difficult because the difficulty with being a medic, being a doctor is. Patients come first. You, you, your care should be towards them. Yeah. There should be a priority. At the same time, we're kind of taught, look after yourself. But really, truly, doctors are so ingrained in terms of looking after everyone else but themselves. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And now there has come a time where this is more important than ever. And I don't know how it feels. And, you know, where junior docs especially, they don't want to flag issues. They don't want to kind of create problems and issues. They don't want to go mm. up management and hierarchy, right? I'm sure a lot of junior medics will relate. So... I'll be nervous, but I know my nature will be, even though the risk is there, I'll still probably go into work and continue working. It's just, mm. I've always been like, you know, I don't want to cause trouble. I don't want to kind of get management involved in it, et cetera. Mm. And you do hear some people, and they do flag it, they will be disciplined or they'll be told, like, you know, the guidelines say X, Y, and Z. So it's a very, it's a catch-22. You're in a very difficult situation. So for me, I feel I'm those ones that I don't like causing trouble. I like doing my job. Yeah. I want to get on with it. That I might take the hit unbeknown to the devastating effects it might happen to me later on down the line yeah you can't like we can't hide away from the fact because we've had SHOs pass away yeah I've seen my own registrar on um, on CPAP mm. he, he was about to oh, be wow. ventilated and he, he was he's, just, he's a proper soldier the mm. registrar so he was like 
I'm going to get through. Don't ventilate me because most likely I won't come off. Mm. Um, and he managed to make it out. But then we've, we've lost SHOs, we've lost consultants, we've lost nurses, HCAs. And um, that's the consequence of, I guess, we we obviously put our patients first mm. and we go in to any room mm. to treat the patient. And I think the devastating effects of it, we don't really think mm. about. And I think it's up to the government and people around us to protect us. No, I definitely um, agree. Seeing all of that, how would you describe the morale in the hospital? So the thing is, how are I, people taking it? How are the staff taking it? Are they happy? Are they annoyed? Are they getting frustrated? I, I feel like, so at my hospital, again, I don't know about the DGHs and those places that are being underfunded and not mm. receiving the PPEs and things mm-hmm. like that. But at my place, I think the public supporting us in terms of with the food, especially. Yeah, that's been amazing. Yeah. A massive shout out. Thank like, you. I haven't had to buy lunch, <laughs> breakfast or dinner for a yeah. long time. But people don't realise just the value of how happy it makes us when we've just got some food, good food good tasting food just being given to us for all the hard work that we're doing um, I think it just boosts morale from there mm. but I think you know what patients have become there's also been a shift in the gratitude and the understanding of how hard the NHS truly works mm. and I've had more thank yous more more messages of gratitude more every patient that I've seen on the ward round has later on said at the end of the ward round thank you for doing what you do mm. And I've never seen that before. I've never seen not, yeah. I like think it's this sort of gratitude. I think the the in all really bad negative situations, there's naturally always loads of positives. And I think mm. obviously you know NHS has been massively underfunded, a reducing workforce. But I think this has been an opportunity for the general public to see how vital important the NHS is, how vital important all the workers in a hospital or any medical institute are, and kind of. Sh- kind of shows you the other side because normally health is one of those things unless you're really ill unless you're poorly or family members poorly it's something you you kind of neglect you leave it you go about your exactly, day to day yeah. um and in terms of morale i think in the beginning the funny thing is we used to see pictures of like doctors abroad in italy with the with the marks on the face yeah, and yeah. you're thinking oh that's awful and i remember i started on this new rotor like four nights in a row and at the end of it, your face is sore. Your nose hurts. It gets really warm and stuffy inside the PPE. The the mask is, you know, what? I wore the mask for one on ward round, and it's really uncomfortable. It's to difficult breathe. to you breathe. Light headed, and like, I remember the other day, like my nose was dripping, right? So I thought, ah, oh, you know, maybe I've got a snotty nose, and I took off the mask, and I was bleeding. I had a nosebleed because you know. <laughs> Like medically speaking, the mucous membranes became dry and it got irritating. I started yeah. bleeding. So imagine I took off my FFP mask or what the mask I had on the time and yeah. it was full of blood. And I'm thinking this is just, you know, a runny nose. <laughs> but um, credit to like all so the people. So you were just slurping in your snot then, you thought? <laughs> no, I was slurping. I was thought, do you know what? I need to get off the unit. But then, you know, because it's such a, like, a, a valuable commodity, right? Yeah. You don't want to waste it. So you don't That's want to true. be coming in and out of the unit, wasting it. Mm. And credit to all the people that are on the front line working with it like it's really tough and really difficult really, to because yeah. you're wearing double layers of gloves and you know normally things that you do with ease becomes very difficult especially mm. in a closed unit um but i wanted to kind of mention what i was talking about is yeah the morale i think mm. it kind of united us together as a nation it kind of mm. united everyone in the hospital because now all of a sudden you had this common theme you're fighting for this common cause yeah and that's been something amazing to see obviously there are moments where it's difficult you lose patience there are moments where it's frustrating maybe logistics um but then it comes on to visitation and death mm. um where it was always you know 
we always had this culture before cro- the coronavirus where when people were dying we had family around them mm. we'd inform relatives but obviously since this happened it's been a closed unit and i have seen so many people pass away without having had any contact with family members since being admitted now it's you know you've got zoom you've got face at least mm. there is some degree of contact but a few of them before this passed away by themselves so i don't know what and that's a bit heartbreaking and that's a bit depressing to a certain degree like lots of people are passing away where they haven't seen their relatives or been with their loved ones in the last moment of life and a lot of family members at home so imagine your father's in hospital two three weeks intubated and finally you know, he, he passed away for you to get a call in the morning saying his, his that, you know, that's that's something that you, you can't really even imagine you can't even really put yourself in the patient's shoes or mm. the the relative shoes like i can't even fathom that because obviously the big decision has been made that we've limited visitation i think for a good reason because mm. if you think about it if you have a family coming in to see someone who's got the coronavirus it spreads to them that family take it home spread it to their children their family uh, the elderly in their house and it just spreads like wildfire and from one death you you have loads of other deaths in mm. the same family so i think it avoids a lot of deaths but i think the emotional toll of it all you can't hide away from you can't shy away from so if it was your father that was intubated mm. i think when it comes to that i don't care if i'm going to get the coronavirus i yeah. want to see my dad um and i don't i think as doctors as nurses as ward members we have to really really be very what's the word i'm looking for very um empathetic I agree. and really understand the next of kin the relative that's really sort of pushing to let me just let me see my father let me see my sister my grandmother mm. because if we were in that shoes I, I don't like i think all of us would say i don't care if i get the coronavirus yeah. i want to see them cuz cuz at the end of the day that that desire and the will to see a loved one especially when they're ill when they're poorly especially if you know they haven't been doing well and they're yeah. on the verge of death like you know them ones it's like if you're in the middle of work and you're a thousand miles away from home you'll jump on that plane to come and see them right exactly so yeah. it's the same thing and to not be able to do that or kind of being banned from coming into hospital to see them it i don't know what they're feeling and it's you can just only appreciate and feel for them and yeah. it's such a sad sad feeling and walking at the end of the unit sometimes when you've you've kind of lost a patient or someone's passed away and you couldn't do much to help them it's heartbreaking and it's like your confidence takes a hit your morale takes a hit everyone's yeah. do you know what i mean and it's difficult at the same time we do have patients who come onto the unit we give them some support we give them mm. some aid and they go back to back to the unit so they go off the unit and you feel like oh, do you know what it's a small win um so it's one of those ones i guess a, a mix of emotions exactly yeah um so on that topic of of death right have mm. you ever in the ITU department ever come a situation where you've had a ventilator and you've got two patients and you've got one ventilator mm. have you ever come across that situation where you've had to make a decision like that so yet? fortunately enough for us in terms of ventilators we've had enough for our patients so okay, every patient fine. that was admitted to because we got ventilators from theaters and they were like we already had two big units anyway so as far as i'm aware we don't have any of that issues where you had to choose between two patients or one ventilator between two i'm not too sure if that actually became the case for okay. the country per se where we were fighting over ventilators for mm-hmm. us that wasn't the case and i'm not aware of us having to kind of choose yeah um, no i've not come across that yeah i was just thinking because i've i just seen it on the internet i, was just I think thinking. the fear was that and it mm. could have easily got to that point where a lot of people admitted a lot of yeah but then again maybe the lockdown has helped and exactly. definitely the lockdown has helped so the number of presentations the number of people attending hospital has reduced 
Um, I think that's what we wanted to avoid. And I think so that's I think, what yeah, yeah, I think successful. everyone would agree. In terms of the lockdown, it was delayed. And if it was mm. brought in earlier, maybe there would have been an added layer of benefit. But personally, I haven't come across that situation. Mm-hmm. And I hope to not come across that situation. Absolutely. Regardless of seniority and experience, and it is not a good position to be in personally. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. What's it like in ITU now? So um, in my medical department, right, we're seeing different cases now come through the door. So before it was obviously a lot of coronavirus, Mm. shortness of breath, cough, Mm. fever. I feel really unwell. Now what we're finding is that with the flattening of the curve that's happening, Loads of patients are coming in, right? Mm. And they've been sitting at home with a heart attack that's, that started a week ago. Yeah, I've heard. Or, for example, I had a patient who came in, had chest pain for three, four weeks. We did a mm. troponin level and it's over five, 6,000 and going up oh, wow. with every troponin that we test. Or the, uh, the other day, a patient came in, he's got liver failure, right? Mm. And he was essentially decompensating. It was getting worse. It was getting worse and worse and worse. He was hiding since January just mm. coping at home and he's come in and he's gone into complete liver failure to the point that we had to transfer him for a transplant mm. um so i think like we're seeing a lot of patients now who were hiding because of the coronavirus and now they've come in with their underlying conditions of Delayed. strokes mm. heart attacks mm. liver failure kidney failure what have you just like really really bad at a point where if they presented earlier we could have at least done something Sorry. better um, I think for us, obviously, being IT, we still have loads of patients that are positive or they've got confirmed coronavirus mm. or they're highly suspicious of it. Um, and that will probably be the case for kind of the foreseeable future. Yeah. The other thing we've seen that is a, probably a bit more interesting is, so we're kind of in the Midlands, we have loads of trauma. So it seems to be the case where the number of traffic accidents or you know road collisions are increasing mm. and it's kind of speculated or kind of thought to be a lot of people are bored at home mm. they're going out driving they've either being drunk or they're racing and they're having accidents so now they're coming in as trauma Damn. a lot of the gang violence is coming in we've you know we had you know we're supposed to be maintaining social distancing and you know staying two meters apart but we're having people come in with multiple stab wounds to the abdomen with bowels hanging out a lot of so initially it was a lot of the traumas and cases kind of were down. Now it's starting to have picked up again. I don't know. I, I have a feeling a lot of people are unhappy with the lockdown yeah. and they're kind of bored at home. They're going out. And then obviously this gang-lang vi- violence is there continuously yeah. and it's starting to pick up again. So we're starting to see a lot more trauma like we did before starting to pick up. Um, so just because pe- people are bored. You know what? I, I used to say this when the coronavirus wasn't really around London parts. Mm-hmm. And when people used to say, oh, it's nothing, it's not. I think... The boredom effect takes only place if you haven't had the coronavirus in your family. Yeah, I think, 100%. I think you have to be very careful because presentation due to boredom, so going out to just race in your cars or fight or drink and things like that, if the coronavirus were to ever touch a single member of your family, you'd realise that the social isolation, how important it is, mm-hmm. you'd realise there's no, there, boredom is a luxury. Yeah. Boredom is a luxury. Time is a luxury. I think yeah. I agree with that. And I think... You might remember the first time, so even working in a hospital, working in ICU, you see coronavirus mm. and you you like, crap, this is really bad and you worry and you get, you take, take a hit. But it's until you know someone, a very close family member, mm. then it really hits you. And I remember when that message came out about one of the older years in medical school who we used to look up to yeah. was admitted and 
if I was to tell you guys he was a tank, he was built like a tank, like six foot something, you know, as wide as he was tall. And he was known as the soft giant, big friendly yeah. giant. And to find out that he was intubated and on the on the on one of the units in London for two days, then it shook me and it yeah. proper shook me. And it was funny that even though I was seeing it every day and I knew the, the the impact and how serious it was, when it's someone that you know, someone that's close to you, it it takes it to another level. Exactly. And I feel a lot of people that may not be abiding the social distances out of obviously unless they're a frontline worker, key worker, central duties or whatnot, is they may not have seen the true extent or how devastating it can be. Exactly. Um, and I think a lot of... And social isolation, I think, is probably one of the worst things that could have happened to a nation like the United Kingdom, mm. as in we are such a multicultural, such a society that thrives of social interaction, like everyone is out and about. Yeah. And then all of a sudden to be told, you know what, you have to stay at home, you have to socially isolate or you have to socially distance. It is a shock to the system, especially in 2020. You know them ones, like yeah. 2020 is my year. Exactly. Like in this part of the world, to be told to do something like that is unheard of. And I think it is starting to affect people. And yeah. you can, you know, I read on Twitter, people are going to have a rant, a protest if they don't uh, if they shut don't. down the, the lockdown. You know what? In 10 years, though, we'll all look back at this case, right? And we will say, did I contribute to more deaths mm. or did I save lives? Mm. And that's for everyone, doctor or not doctor. Mm. Um, you will save lives if you stayed at home and you will have no regrets with how you behaved. But I think for those who have gone around parties and racing and fights and things like that and then brought home the virus and mm. their grandmother has passed away or some a close relative, they'll realise that. You don't know, it'll be, it'll be one of those things, you'll have you'll have guilt on your conscience in 10 years. So mm. it's, a, it's a very, very precautious moment that we're living in where we could have a lot of regret in 10 years time yeah i agree um so we've kind of given you all an insight into how the coronavirus is um because we're doing it remotely we may have it's a bit difficult kind of gathering your thoughts um we're all on like awful rotors um but the main message you know kind of before we give our final thoughts or our future thoughts is look after yourself yeah this is history in the making everyone can play a part everyone can do their bit staying at home saving lives um i feel for people that have lost members to the coronavirus and you know it's our heartfelt condolences to you and your family um but i think the landscape of the country the landscape of the world has changed moving forward Absolutely. um i think it's a reality in terms of we aren't invincible we are humans at the end of the day mm. and it's 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 impressive to see to a certain degree how debilitating a virus something that you can barely see with the human eye is to a nation to a world um so before we wrap up what are your future thoughts is there anything you want to mention um kind of before we wrap up this episode i think um future thoughts wise i hope that a lot of good comes out of this Mm. i think with the coronavirus coming out with the way it's asked everyone to socially isolate but at the same time socially connect with everyone whilst the nhs value has been i think shown to everyone in the public i think there's a lot of good to come out of it um obviously a lot of bad has happened a lot of lives have been lost but i hope it's not in vain um but i hope i hope this will blow over in in no time that's all i can say really Mm. um thank you all for tuning in listening um make sure you follow make sure you share 
um, let us know your thoughts send us a message have a look at the website we've uploaded a few more blogs um, but look after yourself in the meantime and we hope to see you next sunday for our next episode take care guys